Nosferatu, to the undead. He who drinketh the blood of his victims and turns them as well into phantoms of the night. He is as a shadow and hath no reflection. At night he penetrates through walls and doors. In shape of a bat he wafts into the chambers of the sleeping. In shape of a black wolf he hunts down those who flee. Abandon all hope, he whom he doth approach. Welcome to Now Playing's Nosferatu Retrospective Series. Makes men's bodies to quake and their teeth to chatter in their heads. Hosted by Jacob. I believe what I see with my own eyes. Arnie. I love the darkness and the shadows. Where I can be alone with my thoughts. And Stuart. We are scientists engaged in the creation of memory. This episode will contain detailed plot spoilers and strong language. At midnight, all sorts of evil spirits are set loose. We hope you enjoy the show. If it has to be today, it has to be. I'm ready. Today we're discussing Nosferatu the Vampire. Starring Klaus Kinski, Isabel Ajani, and Bruno Ganz. Directed by Werner Herzog. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and... I saw something horrible, I'm afraid. And Stuart. And this is the co-host with the lovely throat, Jacob. It's 1979. You have your choice of vampire. I even thought about holding back on this one, but since it's Nosferatu, I figured we'd tie it to the 1922 Nosferatu. But you could have seen this movie in 1979, or you could have seen Frank Langella in the Universal Dracula we'll be talking about in a few weeks, or you could just go full disco and see Love at First Bite. I chose Love at First Bite. Uh, Love at First Sight for me, I actually put that in the book before I pulled it back when I realized I had not one but two vampire parodies in our book. (laughs) I had that and I had Tales from the Crypt, Bordello of Blood. So while there is somewhere out there in my Google Drive a review of Love at First Bite, yes, that one was mine. I probably watched that a hundred times as a kid. I couldn't get enough of it. Have you ever seen a movie by Werner Herzog? That's what I want to know. You know, I looked it up. Who is Werner Herzog other than a star of the Mandalorian TV series? Yeah, he does oddly show up there. And I think I know more of him from like just him like talking weird philosophy and documentaries and stuff than actually having seen his film. I kind of confused him with another German director actor with a similar name, Rainer Werner Fassbinder, who did really weird movies too. But when I looked up on Letterboxd, like this is the only film of Herzog's that I've actually seen. Like I I thought I had seen more, but this is it. I just know he's a weird dude. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So yeah, he's kind of had a renaissance. In the 70s, German cinema had a renaissance. Somewhere between the 1920s and the 1970s, you know, probably when a wall got built, things were not going so well 
for cinema in Germany. You, there weren't a lot of like German filmmakers or big hits coming out from either side of that broken country. But in the 70s, it suddenly, they had all of these filmmakers that were young and reactionary and wanting to talk about politics. And yeah, Werner Herzog was one among many. I think of him as being in some ways the most experimental. But yeah, there was Fassbender, there was Wim Wenders, Volker Schlondorf. The one that went Hollywood is Wolfgang Peterson. I mean, I think everyone knows him. He did Das Boot. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I knew the name Werner Herzog quite a bit, but... When I sat down to watch this, I realized this was my first time watching one of his films. In the 70s, he was big, and this was, I think, his first American film. But he did, I think, in the 90s, 2000s, probably with that film Grizzly Man. That seems to be the one that sort of put him back on the map. He had all of these documentaries, and one of them was about a guy that went rogue, basically had a mental breakdown, and went out into the woods and tried to befriend bears to tragic results. He just has a way of capturing the starkness of uh, reality. And yes, there's something about his voice. I love hearing him talk. Yeah, the pithy ways that he can reduce (laughs) sentiments uh, into their most bleakest ideals. I think that in some ways he's the driest comedian I can think of for that reason. I forgot. Yeah, he now is he is on The Mandalorian. He wants Baby Yoda, right? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Vaguely remember that. I do wonder if we'll cover another one of his films. I looked through his filmography. I could see us doing the Bad Lieutenant series someday. Oh, God, I forgot he did the second one of those. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Not really a commercial filmmaker, more just like an interesting dude that lives in L.A. and, yeah, just kind of keeps making films. He's very prolific. The film he made right after this one, Fitzcarraldo, was almost a masterpiece. He, he worked a lot with Klaus Kinski, and I don't know if that name's any more familiar than, than Werner Herzog. We've talked about him for a few dollars more. He, he was one of those bad cowboys in the corner in that. Okay, yes. Make this into a a movie, their relationship. My understanding is, like, the only way Herzog could get Kinski to do what he was supposed to is threaten to shoot him in the face all the time. Like, he says the only reason he didn't murder Kinski is because he went into his room to set him on fire. Kinski's dog alerted him. This is the notoriety of their relationship. There is a documentary about Oh, there is? Okay. (laughs) Yes, my friend Klaus. So if that is something you really want to know about. They work together a lot. Fitzcarraldo is the one where I can really imagine they wanted to kill each other. It it is about the artistic process. It's about a bad man that wants to bring opera and culture to the Amazon. And so he has an opera house literally boated in and drug through the rainforest. And they literally did that. And it took years. And, you know, it was kind of like Apocalypse Now, only it didn't end with a classic movie. It's kind of a strange and satisfying movie. But that was one of their famous pairings. But they had this combative relationship. Many films they worked on. And while they called each other friends, the stories from the set were of lots of fights. Yeah, the only thing I really know Klaus Kinski from is Dr. Zhivago. Is he in that? Yeah. I Not as a character I even remember. Okay. I always think about Crawl Space. I rented that in the mid-80s. He played a Nazi next door to a woman that he would get into the Crawl Space and watch her undress. And then... I think he just does that in real life. Kinski's a real creep. 
Mm, okay. I do love what I read on Wikipedia. The One of the most entertaining things I've read in a long time is he turned down a role in Raiders of the Lost Ark telling Spielberg <laughs> yes. the script is a yawn-making, boring pile of shit and moronically shitty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds like him. Yeah, difficult actors can be fun in the stories, but maybe less so on set. And this one was, well, it was done quick. It was done cheap. But yeah, there was some animosity. I think the makeup process was quite extensive. And Kinski reports that he literally went method and, and became a vampire, whatever that means. <laughs> I, I worry about, yeah, the interns or people working on the set that got bit on the neck, however that went down. But yes, he was the one and only choice for playing Count Dracula and Werner Herzog's mind. Wait, what happened to Count Orlock? The copyright expired. Like, as soon as that expired, Herzog jumped on this. Which is weird, because he's remaking Nosferatu, like, image-wise, like, the way Dracula slash Orlock looks, but he's using the names and all that from the Stoker novel. Yeah, so why would you do that? I mean, one obvious one is Universal's putting out a Dracula movie at the same time. One is going to get confused. One is going to get lost in the shuffle. So you have to stand out. But also, Werner Herzog is political and German, and he considers the very first Nosferatu to be the greatest German film of all time. In part, in his mind, he saw it as the prophecy about everything that would fall on his country. That you can look at that film and see someone that knew evil was descending in the form of the Third Reich. And so I think, in his mind, coming back to it, he wanted to honor what had been done in that and maybe talk a little bit more about the future of Germany as well. Yeah, it is weird because this is a Nosferatu remake through and through. I mean, down to the Count carrying his own coffin through the streets of Germany. I mean, <laughs> that's something I don't remember from any version of Dracula I ever saw. But yeah, the names are all Dracula, as is, of course, the plot, which we talked about last week when we did Nosferatu. Yeah, and anybody can make a Dracula movie since the 60s, really. And, and Hammer Horror, the British really were cranking those ones out at that time. So Dracula was a factory by this point. We're jumping from the first Dracula to, what, probably the 30th at this point. But I think a unique one, and one I had never seen before. I remember this movie being on cable. I remember really wanting to see it, being in an incredible horror phase, hearing good reviews, and my older brother actually watching it and going, don't bother, it's really dull. And so I just shrugged my shoulders and never got to it until this week. But that was my impression, was that this film was kind of a slog if you weren't in the mood. Wow, so I guess I'm the one, the only one that had seen this previously, because this is what got me into wanting to see that silent one. I, I, I mentioned that with our Nosferatu 1922 review, but... Yeah, when I was in college, we had a movie theater on campus, and on, like, Tuesday nights, they'd have international film night, free. And so I didn't have any papers one night, didn't have to work that night, so why not go to the movies by myself? Something I actually do like to do. And yeah, so I'm like, I'll go see this Nosferatu. I think I thought this was probably the original one they were showing. It, the, like, the imagery is so similar. And yeah, I really connected with this one. We'll talk about it when we get into the review. But yeah, this made me go back and find that silent film. And I have seen both cuts. Yes, there are two cuts here. I've seen them multiple times. 
Now, this was made, well, it was the agreement, it's put out by 20th Century Fox, and it was agreed that for America, there would be an English language version. And the way I understand it, Herzog's kind of known for this. He just did weird things on the set. One time he hypnotized everyone, City of Glass, like that movie was literally done with all the actors under hypnosis. They don't even remember making the film. In this one, they had to do take one, say it in English, take two, say it in German. Yeesh. Not quite for every scene. Whenever it was close up on the actors, yes, they would do two takes from far away shots where you can't see their mouths or if the shot was really expensive, like when we get towards the end, when we got tons of extras carrying coffins around, like we can't do that twice. It's too expensive. And certain actors, the actor who plays Renfield and the one who plays Lucy, they are French actors and their accents were so thick, like they had ADR and both in the German mm. and what is called international version, the English version. Yeah, I could tell Renfield's lips were not matching his words at all. Yes. So I didn't know why, but it was obvious. Yeah, and there's not really, like, there's no added scenes. Like, it's just different angles sometimes. And maybe Mm -hmm. the words are slightly different, maybe because of translation, but not huge difference, no added scenes or anything like that. Yeah, I ended up seeing both. And yeah, the subtle differences, maybe we'll point out. It's mostly in the dialogue. But yeah, surprisingly, the same experience in the language you prefer. So Arnie, why don't you give him the plot in English and we'll dig into this vampire. <laughs> the international plot summary. Uh, you mean the plot summary that I used last week with a couple of names changed? Sure. <laughs> I changed a few other things, but yeah, it's the same movie. Ah, uh, to be determined. It's the same plot. Okay, I'll give you that. Yeah, for sure. In the 19th century, real estate agent Jonathan Harker, played by Bruno Gans, has been sent to Transylvania to meet a client named Count Dracula, played by Klaus Kinski. Dracula wants to buy an estate in Harker's town. Harker goes, enticed by the thought of the big commission, and he ignores Dracula's strange appearance, and even lets go when Harker cuts his thumb and Dracula starts sucking on the appendage to drink the blood. When Harker drops a photo of his beautiful wife Lucy, Dracula immediately buys the property, which happens to be just around the corner from Harker's own home. Back home, Lucy has been having nightmarish visions that her husband is in danger. And he is, for Dracula is a vampire. Harker finds the Count sleeping in his coffin. Dracula corners Harker and bites his neck, and then Dracula departs for his new home in Germany, leaving Harker behind. Fearing Dracula has designs on Lucy, Harker races to try to beat Dracula to Germany. But Dracula's bite has made Harker very sick and delusional. Aboard the ship... Dracula kills the entire crew and the captain. He carries his coffin to his new home. Harker does arrive back in Germany, but his pale appearance and his strange demeanor worry his wife Lucy. Harker doesn't even seem to remember Lucy. Lucy takes care of Harker, but reading Harker's journals, she becomes convinced that Dracula is a vampire and the cause for Jonathan's strange illness. The town becomes overrun with death, a combination of plague and Dracula's feedings but Lucy devises a plan to stop the Count. Dracula goes to visit Lucy to feed on her blood, but while drinking from the young woman's neck, Dracula loses track of the time. Lucy dies from her blood loss, but the sun rises and Dracula is killed by its rays. To be sure Dracula stays dead, Dr. Van Helsing drives a stake through Dracula's heart, an act that gets Van Helsing arrested for murder. And Jonathan, now at least half-vampire, Rides off on his horse as credits roll. And as they start, one of the few scenes that was not in that original silent movie, mummies. <laughs> Little mummified babies all stacked in a row, sort of setting the tone of death. 
Yeah, this film feels so much more that it's about death and dying. Like, I don't even know if these mummies are supposed to be from this village in Germany, but it just makes sense to me. Like, it tells you immediately what to expect with this version of Nosferatu. What an incredibly disturbing series of images we get here. I mean, I'm assuming these are real mummified children. Yep. And they are grotesque and disgusting and unsettling combined with an image of a bat flying in slow motion this opening really unsettled me yeah i believe these are from some catacombs in mexico actually where they got these mummies and like took them out of the glass i thought they would deteriorate super fast but look he doesn't care about rats in this film either so i I guess herzog does what herzog wants he drags opera houses through the (laughs) rainforest so yes he wants to bring the impossible to the screen and so what is his intent here I agree. One thing that becomes clear from these openings is that it's really 70s trippy. The music choices, the imagery here, a real psychedelic 70s vibe to this. It is definitely not disco. I think sometimes you say 70s and people think, I mean, if you want that one, wait for Langella. We'll we'll get the disco (laughs) vampire. But yeah, I just feel like it really has this trippy, out of time experience that is either going to be hypnotic or boring. I'm just going to go ahead and put it out there. The challenge of a silent film is that it might feel like it goes on too long. And the challenge of this film is also that it risks going on too long. I know Fox editors were screaming for them to cut this thing down. And Herzog said, no, the poetry is in allowing the space and allowing the characters to explore the landscapes. Can I say half hypnotic and half boring in equal measure? Like, I love this music. I think this music is hypnotic. So much of it is just this droning, I guess, synthesizers or something. It like, not even really melodies going on. And and we've had that whole debate. But yeah, I do like minimalism. And so, yeah, this droning synthesizer with these skulls. Like, I, I dig this vibe right away. And I also just dig the fact that it's all the dream of our main character, who is Lucy Harker, which, by the way, is not the character from Dracula. Lucy was the friend. Mina was the main character. I don't know why they made that choice. Maybe something... They probably just mixed it up. Yeah. (laughs) I thought that when I was writing this. I'm like, I kept running to say Mina, Mina, and Mm -hmm. it was Lucy. I was, all right, thank you for confirming what I suspected. Yeah, we're going to get a lot of Lucys later on. When we get to Dracula, they'll get the names right. But here, for whatever reason, a mistake or all in playful fun, I'm not sure... But we have a, a character who's waking from this nightmare, and I just laugh that she's sleeping in a separate bed from her husband. Like, it just sort of sets the tone for this frigid, frigid marriage where this man claims he wants to buy his woman a house, is doing all of this so that he can make her life better, but basically can't stand to be in the same room or the same bed with her. I mentioned, like, homosexual undertones with that last one. I feel like you could do a whole thesis here. Like, he's going to forget who Lucy even is because he's with this other man. Like, yeah, right from the beginning, this is all about Lucy's hardcore love for Jonathan. Jonathan don't seem to really care about her, though. Yeah, I don't know if that makes it homosexual or just misplaced passion. The way that he connects with her is some future ideal. He doesn't acknowledge her presence. It's all so easy for him when he is given the offer to go sell a house to Count Dracula. 
It does seem like Jonathan has a similar viewpoint on life, like where he's at in life, as Dracula. We'll find out Dracula is, like, bored of the same thing every day. And Jonathan, before he leaves, he does say something like, our life is like these canals that just go in circles and, like, don't really go anywhere. Like, I do feel like he's a young Dracula. We'll see his transformation through this. But he he has those same feelings about life. Like, there's something stale about it. Indeed. And I, I sensed, at least in this much, that last time the character was named Thomas Hutter, it was his fault that everything happened. It was his greed, is the way that I define it. Greed led to this plague. In this one, it feels more like coldness, like a, a lack of passion, or maybe misplaced love for something beyond what he has in his day-to-day. What's funny is, in my plot summary, in the first one, I thought I was stretching by saying it was the commission that got Hutter to go there because he really was ordered by his boss in that one. Here, though, Harker seems really excited by the thought of the big commission he can make, even though he is put off a bit when Renfield is describing the trip he's going to have to make, I believe, through the Carpathian Mountains. Mm-hmm. But he does seem like he wants to go immediately and Lucy's like, why don't we go take a walk on the beach before like we used to? And so he delays his trip for like an hour. <laughs> yeah. And when it, when it's time to go, the composition is such that like the horse's ass is literally like front in the frame, like just telling you this guy is an asshole for what he's doing. We're to have that judgment about him. And this is Bruno Gantz. He was a big German star. He was in a lot of Vin Vendor's movies. Wings of Desire is the one that I think of him for. But yeah, the, he would have been a big get to international audiences, as would Isabella Ajani. She was a big French actress as well. To Americans, probably not... Uh, a big deal. I don't know that this really had much impact in America. I don't think the box office was very much. Yeah, I don't know who those actors are. I do know uh, Johnny, she has a great look. Like, later on, I feel like she's really trying to channel some silent filmmaking acting with her expressions, and she nails it. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, you know, we all praised about the first movie are the visuals. Here, the gambit is, one, color. Not black and white tinted with color, but actual color palettes and... There was some location shooting last time, but here we really, it almost feels like naturalism. It feels like everything's lit by actual sunlight, and they've gone to places that probably have existed for hundreds of years. It feels like they're trying to capture a sense of realism to this fantasy. They're actually going to this mythical place. There's also a saturation to it, like these homes. I don't know, I could see like the wood grain and the doors, like these red painted doors and everything. It's so gorgeous looking. I thought it was very 70s muted. You know, you talk about saturation. I thought it was kind of desaturated. It looks like it's been remastered, but overall, it seems like a lot of browns and midtones. but it did help give a sense of place, a sense of feel. I'm not dinging it for that. It's just a lot of the movies coming out of the 70s looked like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you do associate that with horror films, though. And Yeah, I do. I mean... Okay, I, I don't expect this kind of palette with a vampire film. Yeah, it's so pastoral. I mean, I don't know of too many, like, green valleys and such that horror movies, like, explore here. But yeah, as he goes heading off on this horse and goes on his adventure, it really 
Yeah, I, it's beautiful, right? I mean, this movie has a gorgeous look to it. It's the music that sells us on the idea that what he's doing is dangerous. And when you talk about it feeling like a documentary, when we get to that inn with these Roma gypsies there, this feels like a documentary. Like, there's just a duck sitting in that restaurant for some reason when he mentions the word Dracula. I noticed that duck. That duck was hysterical to me. It might have just been a Herzog joke, like he thought it was funny. I don't know. You know, last time we talked about how immigrants were the evil, right? Right? How Orlock is bringing his otherness to Germany and infecting it. Here, it feels like the opposite. It's the immigrant community that really has the right idea. They're trying to warn this German not to pursue this. And he reads the book. He does all the things that the character did last time. He cannot be swayed. Even when the guy is like, I don't have a horse. I don't have a carriage. As he's like cleaning his (laughs) horse and carriage. I mean, it couldn't be more of a middle finger. This guy's like, okay, I'll just go on foot. Yeah, the the guy with the horse was amusing, and I didn't quite get it. What happened to Harker's own horse? He rode a horse this far. Yeah, I didn't get that. Like, they just take the horse away. Like, I think the villagers there just really want to stop him from going, because that horse disappears. They tell him he can't take it. Yeah, maybe the creatures of the night got it. I don't... Yeah, we have no hyenas in this one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, again, it's, he's at the mercy of the community that is from this mythical area. And some of them have gone to the other side. They talk about it being a phantom plane. I think that's all the more appealing. I think this character is bored with his life and hopes to have this conquest and, and go out there. And again, these are the scenes that Fox was complaining about. Does he have to climb so much of the mountain? Do we have <laughs> to have him going through that cave with the river running by it? It's a very evocative. If it weren't such captivating nature for photography, you could make the argument this is slowing the movie down. In fact, the movie is slow and the audience needs to adjust for that. There's a different focus on this than the original 1922 one. I mean, there has to be. And it feels like this journey, yeah, because you could show all this beautiful nature. Again, I wouldn't put that past Herzog, like, wanting to explore that. Like, it's just, he's offbeat like that. And yeah, let's have some beautiful nature shots. He grew up right around here. This is actually his home country. Okay. So I think that that was part of the appeal. That explains a hell of a lot, because I was like, who did the location scouting for this cave? How did they find all of this gorgeous and interesting visuals to look at so that he grew up there makes a lot of sense? Yeah, Herzog grew up without a TV. He didn't see a movie till he was 17, and he started making movies at 18. So he really did have a whole life of just living in this pastoral way and and really wanted to capture that. And probably because I saw this on International Cinema Night, where he watched the German version, I'm willing to accept, like, European cinema is typically, like, slower. And so I go with the pace. I accept it. Like, it's never been a problem for me. But, like, I look at you, Arnie, because I am watching it this time. I'm like... I can see people complain about the pacing of this. It's very slow at times. I am fine with the pacing during this first act. I think it carries with it a sense of dread, a sense of wonder, a sense of mystery. Mm -hmm. I completely go with the mood that's going on here. Now, I'm not, I'll just say, later in the movie, I feel like this thing's really dragging its feet. I feel like it buries itself with a coffin, but not while he's on his way to Dracula's castle at all during any of this. I'm really you mentioned the word hypnotic i could say i was hypnotized by the visuals and very much into this film at this point Mm -hmm. i agreed with that and i do think that's the challenge if you are here for horror in the most traditional way then this is 
telling you, I think, right now, whether this is going to be your style or not. Because it's not really, in the most obvious ways, a suspenseful film. It is more about dread. It is more about mood. It is more of goth, really. It's more about pondering existence, both eternal life and death. And that's, if that scares you, great. But that's the kind of horror we're getting. An existential meditation, very German, not at all a horror movie like Langella is going to do same year. But then we get Count Dracula and he's definitely out of a horror movie. I mean, he's <laughs> out of the original Nosferatu. It's amazing how that makeup here it's different than what we got before in subtle ways. No bushy eyebrows. Yeah, no eyebrows. And the ears here look more like a boxer's ears that kind of just got cauliflower, cauliflower. ears <laughs> instead of the pointed ears. But his look is so pale and creepy. And those fingernails freaked me out. Just so disgusting fingernails. <laughs> I love the way he's framed when they're having that dinner all black. You just see that pale white face sticking out of the blackness. It's is this a jump out and scare you type of horror film? No, but it's unsettling. I would argue that all of the classic moment, if you want that scare kind of stuff, the silhouettes, all of the stuff that like really we were praising last time. I think Herzog chooses not to do those. Like that famous levitating out of the coffin shot. They don't recreate the moments that have lived on. There's only like one and a half shots that they recreate that were scary from that last one. Yeah, you're right. He's not going for that type of vibe here. No, when I look at Kinski, I see the wounded eyes. And to me, this whole performance is really based on the idea of his longing. This is uh, a Tim Burton creation. This is the star. Let's just call it what it is. Last time, we were rooting for Hutter to, you know, stop this plague from spreading. And now I very much feel like it is the vampire. It is the immigrant experience. It is the one that exists outside of time that we are to pity here. To talk about how he's portrayed here, he does often look like a floating head in blackness, and it is just such a great use of contrast. But you know what it reminded me of a little bit? Remember that one shot in The Exorcist where you actually get to see Pazuzu, mm -hmm. and it's that white face in the blackness? That's what he looks like here. <laughs> I just kept going back to it when they're doing like the close-ups of him, and I'd say 85% of the frame is completely black, and then there's his face just floating in it it's really just listen it's a high bar to measure up to the visuals of Nosferatu it is hubris to think I can do better visuals than that in the original because those were groundbreaking and iconic and yet here Herzog didn't ape the original but yet is in theme with the original, with the use of shadows, and creating tremendous imagery all his own. I agree. Like, instead of just one skeleton knocking on the bell of a clock, like, we have a skull that a skeleton comes out of, and then another skeleton with the scythe pops out of that, and there's, like, lizards. Like, he's doing the visuals in his own way, and what you were saying, Stuart, is what made me connect to this film. It's a scary vampire, but we're not going to play that up. We're going to play up the sad goth elements. Like, he is sick of life, and I remember, like, I instantly connected with this film because I'm like, yeah, it's, it's pretty common today to make sympathetic villains and all that, but I was not expecting that from a vampire movie, from a Dracula movie, that he was actually sympathetic and we should care about him and feel his pain, and, and so that just grabbed me instantly when I first saw this. 
Yeah, and I think if we were to go on and cover Shadow of the Vampire, which is about the making of the original one, Defoe takes a lot from Kinski. I do believe he doesn't play it like Max Shrek. He plays it like Kinski and these eyes. Again, it's all about the expression and the teeth. I'll give you the, <laughs> the snake teeth are a little upsetting every time I see them. But yeah, when he's talking about the futility of uh, each day, you know, living for centuries, when he says that line, what a lovely throat. I laughed <laughs> in the original one and here I'm haunted by it. It's a subtle distinction. You could argue this is large. Largely a Van Zant psycho remake, you know, just colorized. But the twist of it is that all of a sudden what used to be frightening is now just kind of tragic, you know, gothic. And I don't know if that's something you could do with a silent film because, it, yeah, it's so much about the words. Like, I feel like a lot of silent films, I praise them because of their visuals. Maybe just the passion of Joan of Arc. Like, that is one that I feel emotionally because it's all about close-ups on faces. But here, this, we don't have to have just music and no words now. Now we can have words and all of that. And so, yeah, they are taking advantage of the advancements of cinema and really creating an emotional vampire here. Yeah, with the music more than the words, though. I would argue, yes, he has a few lines of dialogue, but when I think about this vampire, it's all in Kinski's eyes and his body performance, which sometimes mirrors what Max Schreck did, but has a quality all of its own. And while you may be having deja vu watching the original in such close succession to this one, the feeling that you're getting is entirely different. At least it is for me. I don't know how I go with the whole sad, bored-with-existence vampire. I like some of his speeches about living through centuries and things. I think that there's some good lines in there. But by the same token... In the end, this is going to be our villain. In the end, he's going to lose this sympathy and become a very flat villain once he gets to Germany. And so I really like this stuff here in the beginning. I feel like it doesn't really pay off. Well, it's still good to be a Dracula. They're still going to <laughs> honor the original, still follow the Bram Stoker, as it were. I would say my feelings are aligned with Nosferatu with Count Dracula throughout the movie. I never really warm up to Jonathan, even though, yeah, he wakes up bit and is also trapped. It just doesn't play a suspense to me. It really feels like a prison of his own making. Yeah, he was even told by the Roma people earlier that, like, this place doesn't even exist. Like, mm -hmm. it's all just dream and and maybe he's just caught in some dream of his it's very lynchian in that way like he can't get out of the castle everything's locked and there's a weird boy just playing the violin during the day and i do love like at night like you just hear these howls and screeches of rats like there's a real ambiance and, and feeling to this castle yeah, he intruded on the immigrants' world, right? Like, it feels, in that way, they, they've spun that whole sentiment so that it feels at least more PC. Yeah, very much so. I did notice that. I noticed that with Renfield initially, but yes, also here. But yes, Act 2 is still about getting back to Lucy, that right as he's about to bite Jonathan, he has what I can only call a psychic connection with the girl back home and realizes he really wants to move into that house if that's going to be his new neighbor. Yeah, there's no play with shadow here. It, it does feel much more like a psychic thing, like that other one conversing through the shadows. And But here, no, he, he bites him. I don't know. You learn something from his blood, I guess. Wasn't that an underworld? You like to get memories from blood? Maybe this is where the origin of that. Could be, yeah. I mean, yeah, that was definitely in Underworld, and I suppose that's how we're to read that. Drinking Jonathan's blood just gives him a taste for the woman that he left behind. And so, 
who would be better for her? When she's reaching out her arms in hypnosis, is she calling out for her husband or is she calling for Count Dracula? I'm calling for Count Dracula. I mean, I I much would rather her end up with him. I thought she was calling out for her husband. I'm, I, in fact, I thought she actually says his name. Sure, but who do we want her to end up with? This does feel, yeah, it's a gothic romance. I'll say that. Like, it's a weird couple by the end of it, but it's definitely a romantic film. And again, all the things that I would call horrific, the best scenes in the first Nosferatu are minimized or just gone here. Like the boat ride home, like we don't have the, the guy going down into steerage with the axe and the levitating out of the coffin and jumping into the water. None of that. We just have like the ship coming into shore with the captain tied to the mast. Arnie, you hated all that ship stuff. Like, does this work for you better? Because I did not remember that. Like, they cut almost all of that out. It's just like he gets on a boat and then he's there, basically. Yeah, I was shocked how quick it went. And, you know, I certainly didn't miss the long voyage bit. (laughs) But now you get a long third act, though. (laughs) Yeah, the third act, I'll say my interest really starts to wane once Dracula gets to Germany. And I also am sad because that scene in the original of Orlock carrying his coffin through the graveyard and everything was just funny in all the right ways and so here when he's carrying the coffin it looks too good <laughs> yeah well he doesn't look like he's like overwhelmed by it <laughs> but yeah we get some giggles over it but it's all from Renfield who has been locked up and eating flies out of a cage I got a good laugh when Dracula is moving into his new house and he places his coffin down and he's leaving and there's a cross on the wall and in the English version is better the international version I should say because he like hisses at it like <laughs> doesn't like it in the German one it's just kind of a silent reaction to it but I, I do like that he reacts to that I thought he was putting it in a church actually like he has several coffins I thought he was laying them all throughout the place wherever it was best to spread the plague oh so he was multiple homes for him I think so That's how I took it also. I mean, one of them definitely looked like it was in a church with all the crosses around. Yeah, Yeah, both of them are are having to confront Christianity in the church. We see Jonathan in the nunnery getting well again. And then, you know, he's riding on horseback and there's kind of a Don Quixote allusion to all the windmills that he passes on his way home. Interesting choice that when he finally gets there, he's not the hero that's going to save the day. He's still kind of a ruined, sick, plague-filled guy. He might have even been the one to spread it. Like, that's the way I take it. I don't even know if the boat stopped in ports. I just know that this guy has been riding around infected, so he could be the carrier. In the last film, I wasn't sure if there really was a plague or if it was just Orlock killing everyone. Here, they definitely seem to go with the interpretation that the rats brought the plague. So many rats. And the Count brought the rats. And yes, there were... I hate that I was out of my head during it, but during the scene with all of those rats, and there's some, like, jumping in the canals and things, I'm thinking, there is no way an animal wrangler picked up all those rats and counted all those rats when this was done. There's absolutely no way. Some of those rats got killed. I don't know if they could truthfully say no animals were harmed during the making of this film. No, no. Like half of them died because Herzog, he wanted white rats. There really aren't white rats. So they had to dye them, which meant dipping them in scalding hot water for a few seconds so they could apply the dye. And yeah, so like half of them died. Like if you care about animal rights, maybe not the movie for you. You don't see it on screen, but like that is the behind the scenes stuff. Herzog swears that didn't happen. 
happen. He says that we didn't lose a one of them. Of course, what else is he going to say on a commentary track? Liar. But uh, yeah, I think that he is known, again, for a director that wants to shoot his lead in the face with a gun, I believe he could hurt rats. <laughs> I mean, later on, when we see all this death in the streets, there's like a dead horse just lying there. I'm like, it might have been living at the beginning of this film. <laughs> mm. Yeah, again, you don't know, but I really love the idea that the plague is madness. And to think about Germany as a host of this madness, that is how he saw the original. It was the story about how madness, darkness, evil descended on his home country, be it Nazis or later the Soviets. And I do think that that is what it's meant to evoke here. We have the rich people still having their dinner in the middle of the town square that will... The food will be consumed by the rats at some point, and a man is humping sheep at some point in the, in all the dancing. It's not a disease like, oh, I got bit by a vampire and I'm going to die. It's more like we now have lost our morality, our humanity. It kind of feels like COVID did. Like, there's a lockdown and everyone stayed indoors for a little bit, and then we're like... Uh, we wanted to go to the club and we want to have our orgies and we're just going to do that. COVID be damned. Like the people finally lose their minds here. And, and I do like that. Yeah, it feels like this town has gone mad and the last supper that they're having because they've all caught the plague. And Artie, I could see why people would find this part of it really lagging. I really get into like just how much the focus of death and madness and this civilization crumbling apart is. This is where my interest starts to wane. It gets really bad when Lucy starts reading the journals. Really? See, this is where I, I mean, I like all of this. Finally, Lucy is like an active character. That is the surprise of this film. You think it's going to be Jonathan, but no, he goes away. That's a ruse. It's really Lucy who's the protagonist and hero of this story. Or Van Helsing. I mean, she does first go to the professor that knows all about this. And he, you know, talks about... Kind of what Bram Stoker's Dracula was about. You know, it was the world of the Enlightenment. We believed that everything could be explained scientifically and to move into this modern world where everything's subjective and reality is lives between your two ears. He's just not prepared for it. He's just not equipped to fight something like a vampire. Maybe I have an extremely dry sense of humor like Herzog, but I found this whole interaction funny. Like, again, all this death going on around you, and he's like, well, we must consult the science. We must must get some more data. We can't just go off of faith. Like, you see all this horrific stuff going on, and he's like, yeah, we, we just got to study it more. Like, uh, maybe you want to start solving the problem here, but no, he, he's a man of science. And again, Bram Stoker's Dracula came out of that Enlightenment phase, was the end of it, was the death knell, if you will, and became, you know, this gothic uh, resurgence of myth and superstition. It's important to include those themes here. And I, I like all this stuff. I feel like this one is spinning the time where I want it to, unlike Nosferatu, where there were lags. Yeah, no, I agree, like, th that this gets into more interesting stuff, that Nosferatu... 1922 film like visually great but this has got depth to it it's always good when max shrek's on the screen and when he's not it's problematic why is the equivalent of lucy or jonathan like what are they doing like they're never like big action heroes or anything not that this is an action film but like yeah lucy is proactive and and is trying to solve this while everyone is celebrating the death and just dying and, and, and not doing anything about it oh i agree with you both that i like that Lucy's a very active character. My memory of other Draculas is that at best she's a damsel in distress and at worst she's a prop. So I do appreciate that. But 
don't you guys wish that this section were just maybe 10 minutes shorter or something? <laughs> I don't know. I enjoy the intent of what they're doing, but my interest is lagging terribly the longer this goes on. Hmm, I wonder how you're going to do during this series, because I do feel like the Dracula story is the Dracula story, and these beats are going to follow. Actually, I don't know. There's a few of them that take some risks, but... They are not Hammer Horror Dracula. Like, we're not doing those ones, but those feel much more horror and, and sensational driven. Yeah, they're not adaptations of Bram Stoker either, and, and I do think we're going to see a lot of attempts to do what was done on the page to some degree and how satisfying that will be once we have Dracula preying upon the women. Um, I don't know. I like, yeah, I like Isabella Johnny. I like the fact that she's taking communion wafers and crumbling them up and feeding them to the rats, presumably killing them that way. It's just like small little detail work here. I could have actually used a little bit more of it. I feel like if anything, she remains a little bit too muted a character, but this is not exactly a, a psychological character piece. You know, she's mythic as well. And we've talked about how this one has mostly excised all the use of shadow and those iconic Nosferatu scares. But there is a great one when Dracula first approaches Lucy in her room and you see that door open. She's looking at herself in the mirror. You only see a shadow and then a Johnny just great facial expressions, like really tapping into that overacting silent era type stuff. But I'm saying that as a compliment. It looks great. And then Dracula slowly comes into frame from behind her because he doesn't have that reaction. I thought that was a really great shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems instead of shadow, we have blue. We have this sad blue Dracula, and he's always in blue light, and he's always on the outside. Yeah, we see him at windows, trying, reaching his talons out, but not connecting. And so, yeah, this woman, I love this moment when he comes to her in the bathroom mirror, and she's, yeah, she fights back. She has her crucifix, she has her beliefs, and I, you know, read that what you will, is that assertion of religion and the oppression of communism in Germany, I think that that could be a reading. I mean, I definitely think as we get to this end that Herzog was thinking not just about Nazism, but what the state of his country was in 1979. I thought it was interesting that her love for Jonathan is so strong. That is what Dracula wants. That's just give me a little bit of that. I'll give it back. I'll let him remember you again. And she's like, no, not even God gets that love. Like she super likes Jonathan. Jonathan doesn't care about her at all, though. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, you have the Western and Eastern Germany sort of playing out here. I didn't see it as that big of a metaphor, but okay. I do enjoy the performance of Jonathan as he's back, and I've said in the plot summary, half vampire. I don't quite know exactly if he's full vampire and in the midst of transformation during these scenes, or if he's actually got the plague because he doesn't remember anything. <laughs> Yeah, I think we're to think that he can be redeemed by her sacrifice, that everything is about her doing what she did in the original. You know, if you suck on my neck long enough, if I keep you at my bedside till the cock crows, then you'll be vanquished and everything can return to normal. But I kind of love the fact that in her sacrifice, things are not normal. Like, I, yes. Helsing like shows up way late and is like using the stake after the guy's already dead and then they're trying to arrest him but there's nobody to take him to jail there's nobody <laughs> to monitor the jails it really again it speaks to the madness that is the state of ruin uh, that is Germany of that time I don't know German 
cities and all that. But we do see earlier Renfield finally hooks up with the master, finds Dracula, and he says, take the rats and go to Riga. I don't know if there's some significance in that. That's in Latvia. Okay. We're going to keep spreading this, but he, he's got to go and get that Lucy. And this feels very sexual. I remember, look, I went to a very conservative religious university. And when he pulls up Lucy's nightgown and, and is rubbing her leg and groping her breast as he sucks that blood, like people were, they were clutching their pearls. They were horrified by this. I did notice he totally feels her up as he bites her. I mean, he didn't have to grip right on the tit, but he did. Yeah, Kinski, I'll talk about it when he put on the makeup again for Nosferatu, but maybe his idea to do this. He he would get handsy on sets. Mm. Well, it's effective. And she also grabs his hand and keeps it there because she, again, whatever I can do to entice you to keep you in this moment... I do think these visuals are just as beautiful as they were back in 1922. And, I, and that is the compliment I could really give is, on one hand, you could argue, I've already seen this movie. On the other hand, I haven't seen it quite like this. And I do find that they have found a way to retell the story in a way that feels fresh. Like, this doesn't feel like Van Zandt Psycho. No, not at all. It's not shot for shot. And in fact, here at the end is where I had to change the plot the most, because all of this involvement of Lucy changes the entire focus of the film and we did wonder what happened to dracula or orlock when that sun hit him here he just kind of falls down but it's just the creepiest pose kinski has like all withered up laying in the corner when valent helsing finally gets there to see what's going on yeah it's like bug spray he just looks like a dead insect (laughs) curled up like oh bug bomb went off and this is what came up to the fact that van helsing ran up and staked that makes me laugh i'm like the guy's already dead you've done nothing with your science but congrats but like you said when he comes down and jonathan's like arrest this man like this is a funny scene it's like yeah arrest him well there's no police well, you, you take him to the prison. There's no guards. Like, I have no authority to do this. We'll do something. Like, this does feel like, what do we do? You know, if you're going with your thesis, Stuart, that this is about Nazi Germany and, and, and what happened to Germany with all that. Like, yeah, what do we do? Like, we really screwed up. Like, what do we do now? Like, jail? Like, is that enough for people who committed these horrific crimes? We just get the maid to sweep away the the magic circle that was keeping Jonathan in his corner. And now... I love how fast he sidesteps out of that. As soon as that circle is like (laughs) swept away, he's out of there. That is funny. To the point of like the maid is taken aback that he stands so close. (laughs) Yeah. And he's got the teeth and all of that. It's the second generation. All right. Hitler is vanquished. And now we have like Stalin and and all of that. We have it. We have we have a Germany that's still occupied by totalitarianism. By there's st- and it's spreading to Latvia and all the Eastern Bloc countries. And keep in mind, it's it's easy to think now. Well, yeah, give it ten years and the wall comes down. But at this moment, when this movie was made, it felt like the evil was ever spreading. Well, will the green arrows be spreading? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Nosferatu the Vampire? Jacob. I mean, I I don't think it's a surprise that where I'm going to go with this. Like, I saw this film and, like, liked it so much I had to go see the silent one, like, immediately afterwards. But you said it earlier, Stuart, there is a different focus. If you want the scares, if you want the fun Halloween imagery, you watch that silent one. And it's great. I think it it works. It's called A Symphony of Horror as its subtitle. And, like, yeah, it got great music, great visuals. Like, that's the one for Halloween night to watch. This one... (laughs) It's a very different vibe, and and it really struck a note with me when I watched it that first time. Like, 
yeah, you're saying gothic? Sure. Like, it's got this romantic vibe, this pondering about life. Like, what does death mean? What do you do in the face of it? It asks a lot of questions. There's a lot going on here. Plus, like, we praise so much of that silent film for its visuals. Like, I don't want to pass this one up. Like, beautiful color palettes, beautiful, like, scenery shots. Kinski horrifying as Dracula here. I can't rate which one I like more. Like, I saw this one and, like, had to immediately get more Nosferatu. I liked it so much. And, yeah, they're very different films, but this one has a lot to offer in different ways than that silent film. I, th- I think they should both be watched. But, yeah, another strong recommend for Nosferatu the Vampire. Stuart. I didn't get it when I popped in, but now I do understand this is a remake of Nosferatu and not just another Dracula movie. There is something about its Germanicness that remains. There's something about the slowness and the silence that is in that original that continues on in the long takes and ponderousness, the existential themes. It is the perfect antidote. If you do not want to watch a silent movie, here for you is the experience done in a more modern way. But by saying that, I don't mean to imply that it has the modern horror sensibilities. It remains a curious creature, and even more so morose because Klaus Kinski is allowed to be the tragic hero, anti-hero of the piece. I do feel like the reason to see it, the reason why you have to see it, is that Kinski is so fantastic in that makeup that he makes it his own. No small feat after Max Schreck. He has embodied the vampire in a way that I just want to see every scene that he's in. The compassion that it offers, the multiple readings that it offers. It's a beguiling film. I only had the chance to watch it twice. I'm still sitting with some of it, but I do feel like it has a power that I will remember. And yes, some people are going to be bored. Without a doubt, it's slow. But as someone that likes methodical, intellectual, kind of artsy, fartsy horror, I think that this works really well and pairs really nicely with the 1922 movie. And as somebody who doesn't think a whole lot about Germans' political situation post-World War II, pre the wall coming down, I didn't see a lot of the allusions to German society that you've brought up, Stuart. But yet, I still say this is a remake of Nosferatu and not just another Dracula movie because of the style, because of the story beats. I mean, I've read Bram Stoker's Dracula. I've seen Universal's Dracula that we're going to be talking about. I've not seen it for a while. But the way this story unfolds follows that first Nosferatu in certain ways that is almost a religious devotion to making sure some of the same things are done, like Dracula carrying his coffin through the streets. And there are some scenes where they even do the big shadow thing. When he's approaching Lucy's house, you do get that big Nosferatu shadow that was such a thing in the original version. And yes, the makeup effects here are just as amazing. I didn't think you could possibly compare with Max Shrek. And Klaus Kinski, not as cool a name as Max Shrek, perhaps not a real vampire in real life, the way we wonder if Max Shrek was, <laughs> but a really good version of this Nosferatu character. But yeah, I am going to say that I feel like the second half drags once Harker drops out. Not that I love Harker or the actor who plays him. 
It just happens to be when the story changes focus, when he's no longer in it. I thought this really started to drag a whole lot of scenes of coffins in Germany, either coffins from the plague or coffins of the vampire, and Renfield never really pays off. I really thought I'd like this one more than the German original. I thought for sure that perhaps being a talkie... You said you wanted talking! <laughs> yeah, I thought being a talkie would help. I like the original better. I gotta say, I like that original better, but this one still is good for a lot of the same reasons, and a lot of that is the striking visuals and the artistic style. It's a weak recommend, but it is a recommend still for this one. But ranking them, give me... Well, we haven't talked about it yet. We're hopefully going to, but Shadow of the Vampire Tops, the original Nosferatu second, and then this in third. I feel like Shadow of the Vampire takes a lot. Now that I've seen this movie, I'm actually less willing to give some of the credit I gave to Shadow of the Vampire. I think it, it borrows a lot thematically. I'll just put it that way. But we're not covering that next week. We're going to just get to it because we want to talk about Bella Lugosi's Universal's Dracula. Well, you don't want to talk about Kinski putting the makeup on one more time for another Nosferatu film? I thought we were completists. No, I'm not aware of this. Yes, in 1988, they got him to come back to, I don't want to say to put on the makeup because he refused. He was in full Kinski mode, but they got him to play Nosferatu again in an Italian horror film called Nosferatu in Venice starring Christopher Plummer. Donald Pleasant shows mm. up as a priest, like has one no. great scene ranting as a priest. Nosferatu in Venice sounds like a titty film I would have watched in the 80s. It kind of is, like, at times. Look, here's the thing. Kinski refused to put the makeup on. He has hair, like, wouldn't shave the head. Only a few scenes does he have those snake fangs in his mouth, like when he's got to mm. bite someone. But he wanted to direct the film. Like, it was a huge mess. It's an awful film. Like, he directed, like, 10 hours of footage of just people walking around, and I feel like they put all of that in the film because I. it's just a lot of people walking around. Like, they didn't even finish the film. It's a mess. He's bitter. He's no fun in that. Like, don't watch it. But it's notable. Like, they did get him to play this character one more time. It couldn't be a sequel because he got vanquished. The whole point was that Bruno Gans continued on the, the vampirism. Yeah, but I, it's Kinski. You got to have him back. Christopher Plummer holds like a seance because he's trying to hunt Dracula and that like brings him back or something. Again, Italian horror with Kinski like messing up the entire film for directors. Like it's a mess. Yeah, he is a difficult, difficult actor. There are many productions that speak to that quality. And yeah, I would. I, it would have been worth it if they had captured some of what this movie had. But you're telling me there's none of Herzog's magic. No. Okay. Well, then I don't want to watch it. Please don't. Yeah, let's just get to night. Let's go back in time to 1931 to the English language Bela Lugosi Dracula, because there were two Draculas released by Universal Studios that year. We're going to cover both. But next week, Dracula Bela Lugosi. And my segue would be such a spoiler before we discuss this Friday Soylent Green film. <laughs> But there is a segue there. Everyone knows that what Soylent Green is, I feel. I knew one person that didn't. Okay. I didn't know when I first saw the film years and years ago. But yes, this Friday we will be discussing another dystopian film, a 1960s book made into a 1973 film. Soylent Green is going to be, for our gold-level donors, another Charlton Heston film here on Now Playing. 
Yeah, he had a lot of dystopian ideas back in the 70s, and we've covered Omega Man, Planet of the Apes. Yeah, this one deals with overpopulation. It's got a creative solution for that. Hope you join us this Friday. So thank you in advance for everyone who donates and keeps this show going. It is your support that keeps Now Playing operating every week. So hopefully we will talk to you on Friday. And Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. Until next time, travel quickly, travel well into the land of the specters. Time is an abyss. Profound as a thousand nights. Centuries come and go. To be unable to grow old is terrible. Death is not the worst. There are things more horrible than death. Can you imagine enduring centuries Experiencing each day the same futile things. Thank you for listening to this now playing podcast movie review. We hope you enjoyed the show. They will no longer be able to say you would have had to have been there. Because the fact is, Alvin, we were. Help us spread the word about this show by leaving a five star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. I have a task for you. <laughs> Something I don't dare trust to anyone else. (laughs) Want more reviews like this one? In the archives section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts. How long have you been listening? On our site, you can hear reviews for every installment in the world's biggest film franchises, including the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Star Wars, Spider-Man, Batman, X-Men, James Bond, Middle Earth, Jurassic Park, Fast and Furious, and Transformers. If it's not in frame, it doesn't exist. Plus, we have individual movie reviews, such as Titanic, E.T., Inception, Big Hero 6, Ready Player One, Pulp Fiction, Apocalypse Now, Doctor Strangelove, and hundreds more. A wonderful place. A little gloomy, but very exciting. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast. Listen, the children of the night make their music. Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. You must come with me and help me to crush this, this monster. You can donate directly by tapping the support button at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Such is the price of genius. And you can join our crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. I'm willing to pay you double the price. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. (laughs) The monster is here! (laughs) Associate produced by Jason Latham. What does the master command? Now Playing is edited by Arnie. I mean, I'm suffering for my art, Alvin, believe me. Now playing credits, read by Brock. I have to say this, even if you think it's foolish. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Enganza Media Incorporated. Even the unthinkable will not deter me. 
Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. I see something horrible. I'm afraid. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Thank you. I think we have it. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2023, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. And, and, excellent, Gustav extraordinary discipline in the face of ridicule.